You're listening to a podcast from the RSA. You can find out more about RSA events and projects and how to get involved with the fellowship by visiting our website, thersa.org. Good morning and welcome to today's um, Maker Summit. Thank you for coming. I wanted to thank the generous donation of a, an RSA fellow for enabling this event. Um, and it's part of a broader research programme that we've done into the maker movement in the UK. Um, but this summit is part of the RSA's charitable mission to provide an amazing programme of events. We, had, we were majorly oversubscribed for this event, um, but people can view it over the web and we do have a programme of events all year round. So please do join our mailing list if you want to be involved in events similar to this in the future. But on to the show. What are we here to talk about? Um, Well, from 3D printing to pottery, from eco-retrofit to boot camps, there seems to be an an emerging social movement around making. And we're here today to look in a bit more depth on a variety of different ways and through different lenses about to understand more deeply the maker movement that is happening in the UK. Obviously, we are the RSA, the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufactures and Commerce, and have been that for 261 years. And so this is our core area of interest. Um, But we are talking about the digital age today. Um, So we see that there is a maturing um, digital literacy, and digital literacy has improved our understanding um, of how to use new technology. So we did this in-depth research, um, which you can have a look at and download on the website, called Hours to Master, um, a recent research um, programme that we have put together, and we put this, as part of that programme, put this event on today. So just to look a little bit more into um, some of the survey results that came from the maker um, research that we've done, our report looked at how technology is being adopted, and really observed, we did a YouGov um, poll and really observed that, that w- the, the conversation has moved a lot beyond access and inclusion to digital technologies and actually now about how do you use and apply digital technologies. So we wanted to get a sense of the UK population and how they were really understanding the pace of change and technological change. So when we talk about things like 3D printing, do people understand what that means? Do people understand how they have access to it? And here are some of the, some of the findings. We started to get that, trying to get a picture of that adopting rapid technical change. And 43% of the UK population agreed with the statement that they often feel confused by the pace of technological change. And you might think that there would be a, a very distinct difference between the older generation and the younger generation, but there's kind of confusion across the piece. It is, over in the over 55s, you do see that there's 58% feel confused about the pace of technological change, but still 27% of people between the ages of 18 to 24 feel confused by that rapid pace of change. We wanted to think about that also in the context of making. So we wanted to think about this merging of digital and the craft and, and actually how do people make and get a picture of what making looks like today as well. So this graph gives us a sense of how the UK public understand making. Um, and that our study showed that the nation is enthusiastic about making. Well, that doesn't necessarily come in a very clear or specific form. And we had over a quarter of people regularly making or describing themselves as regularly making things, and 49% as fixing things. And then we had a, quite, a, it's quite an interesting breakdown, actually, in terms of the age range of people who are actually doing things. And you see that the older generation are very active in the fixing things that are broken category. So how to, how to bring this data to life is about thinking 
how is the maker moving working at the individual level, but then how can it also work at a, at a macro level, at a macroeconomic level? And that's what we're going to try and do today. Think about it in the round. So are we on the precipice of a big shift? Is this a maker movement that is set to change the world and the world of manufacturing? And we've brought together a range of really exciting and dynamic panels today, starting with our panel that we have right now. And I'm going to leave it to our ABLE chairs to introduce every member of the panel, but I'll start by introducing our chair. Um, Peter Marsh is the author of the fantastic, a fantastic book on 21st century manufacturing called The New Industrial Revolution. I urge you to check this out. So we couldn't have a better guide for our first scene-setting panel, so I'm going to hand over directly to you, Peter. Well, th thank you very much for the introduction, and it's great to come along to the RSA, and, and, and a wonderful reminder that RSA does have the word manufacturers in it. Um, I, I was delighted to be asked to, um, to, to do this job of chairing this first session, because um, it seems to me to be, this, the whole day seems to be homing in on some really important issues that are... Um, rising up, I suppose, to confront the, the people involved with manufacturing, whether they're a, a small one-person group or whether they're huge multinational. Um, my, my own take on this is that I'm a journalist and I've spent many years working at the Financial Times, where, which was a huge privilege because it gave me the chance to travel around the world talking to loads of, thousands of people to do with the world of manufacturing, which was the thing I got interested in. Um, as a result of that, I wrote a book, came out, three years ago or so, called The New Industrial Revolution, which was really all about what was going on in manufacturing globally, um, looking at um, the coming together of new technology, connections, customisation. Um, um, while doing that, I suppose I sort of cottoned on to this maker movement and started to think a lot about that. I've always been attracted by sort of physical things, which is why I... I, I love books, and I don't really like electronic things, uh, to, 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 to read things. And if I ever I go to the cathedral, um, which also sort of thrills me with anticipation, I sort of love touching the, um, the stonework just to get a sense of what it's all about. So I, I love this idea of people being interested in making things, aided by technology, really, which is really the, the story of today. Um, so I'm come at this really from what I would call the sort of mainstream end of industry but I've always spent an awful lot of time talking to big companies as well as little companies so I've spent an awful lot of time talking to design based furniture makers um, people making artisan ice cream for example is a beautiful um, de depiction of some of the new things going on in industry um, and I, I see that certainly the, the point of this session of, of trying to make the linkages between the the large-scale industry, which is coming more and more into using small-scale 3D printing, localised production, and so on, and, and some of the some of the words of, of, of the of the so-called maker movement um, and people representing these fairly small-scale industries, but which could get bigger. So I, I think it's a great lineup of people, and I'll introduce them briefly. We've got Rosie Greenlees, who's the chief executive of the Crafts Council. Um, or, or executive director, to give it the correct title, and she will explain more, but of course this represents lots and lots of the people who y you know about already, who, who make a huge impact on British life and, and further afield by, by making amazing things. 
And then uh, to, to, to my immediate right is Julie Madigan, who runs uh, a fantastic manufacturing institute. Uh, it's called The Manufacturing Institute, based in Manchester. She's been involved with that, I don't know for how many years, 20 years or so, is it something like that? So she's got a, a huge amount of experience in doing just this, really, bringing together the small scale and the large scale. And as you probably know, it was down to them that they set up this network of, um, of, of entities on a very small scale, making things... Um, and at small-scale level, schools very much involved with the fab labs. I wish you'll say more about that, I'm sure. And then to, to my left um, is Liz Corbyn, who's again from a wonderful-sounding institution. I must say, I don't know too much about it, but it's got a fantastic name, the Institute of Making, from, uh, I think it's involved with UCL, isn't it? But she's also been involved with um, organising this sort of network of craft-based uh, maker Spaces, particularly in London and elsewhere. And then, lastly, to my immediate left is Indy Johar, who's, um, who's essentially an architect, but is, is hugely interested in the world of making things at a small-scale level. And he runs this thing, or he's a co-founder of something called OO, which, to start with, I thought was something to do with Hornby O railway trains, but uh, I don't think it is, is it? It's, it's to do with architecture and making furniture and other artefacts that go into buildings from a small scale. So um, I'm now going to quickly uh, start by asking each of the panel members to um, just make a, a brief statement about what, what, what they think they're trying to get out of it, what their ideas are, how they approach these questions. So please, uh, Rosie, we'll start with you. Thank you. Morning, everyone. Um, thank you very much for inviting me to speak. Um, I, I'm director of the Crafts Council. We're an organisation that's been in existence for 45 years, so we have a, a great heritage in uh, making and craft. And, of course, um, there is a huge um, um, heritage of craft going back many centuries. And what I think is really interesting about this debate is the way in which um, we're looking at the maker movement as something a, a bit very new, when, in fact, I think it's something that um, has emerged at different points um, throughout the centuries, not least in the 16th century, when um, there was a very similar sort of innovation of materials and technology and people engaged in making in all sorts of ways. So I think it's a really interesting moment in time. What's different here, of course, is that we've had this resurgence of interest in skill again, the idea that people want to connect with the physical world, um, the impact of digital technology, and I think all of these things are driving a renewed interest in making. Um, and making at different levels, making at that very um, simple way of, of uh, knitting circles, of people crocheting, things like that, make do and mend, right the way through to um, uh, technology innovation and very, very highly skilled making. From the Crafts Council's point of view, what we're really interested in is looking at the way in which there is a, um, a, a, way, a narrative in which you can talk about craft making contributing to 21st century solutions, um, problems, and how makers can bring something really important and useful to, to those problems. And I think they bring three broad things. Firstly, an interesting way of thinking about the world. They're very reflective. They think through the materials, through the act of making. They also have a, an incredible way of engaging with people and understanding um, uh, the human act, the body, all of those things. And then thirdly, material skills. They have this incredible deep understanding of material skills. 
And when you bring that into um, the context of, of the challenges of, of, of science and technology, then they can bring really interesting ways of thinking to that um, situation. And we have some fantastic examples of, of where that's happened. So I think that notion of manufacturing of industry and of those very small micro-enterprises they're coming together in really exciting ways. And I guess the maker movement and maker spaces has come out of that. It's a democratisation of making. It's a way in which people can access um, knowledge, um, uh, technical expertise, um, equipment and so forth, without having to engage in some of those formal um, structures. Thanks very much, um, Rosie. And now, um, please, um, Julie. Right, yeah, thanks, uh, thanks for the introduction. Um, I guess the, the story in brief uh, for us, and we are a registered incorporated charity, the Manufacturing Institute, with a remit of education for the public benefit with a particular emphasis on manufacturing. So there are some synergies with, with the RSA remit to a degree. Um, we've worked with thousands of manufacturers, so we're very practical. We, we are action-oriented organisation, uh, less research. Um, and over the years, working with thousands of manufacturers, large and small, we've pursued um, operational excellence. And one of the underlying principles of that that informs a lot of improvement in operations is Toyota production system, which um, probably won't be that scintillating to the audience here today. However, what it's aspiring to is a sort of batch size of one, um, a world where you actually you take your tin of beans off the shelf and the tin of beans is immediately replenished with minimal waste, or muda as we call it, in the supply chain and the operational processes. So when I got a call from one of my board members one day who was in the aerospace sector who had come across MIT's Centre for Bits and Atoms, he was quite excited and he said, this is what comes beyond Toyota production system, batch size of one. Basically, you make what you want and you consume it. And I've seen this thing. It's like a Starship replicator on a desktop. And I thought, what's he on? Um, it turned out he'd come across Fab Labs. So we brought MIT across. This is the best part of a decade ago. Everybody got very excited about the idea, but nobody wanted to take the risk of doing it. So everybody looked at us. Uh, we're a charity. And we set up the first Fab Lab in the UK, uh, in Ancoats in Manchester, which is right on the edge of a very deprived area that's an urban regeneration area, and wondered if it would work. Um, at that point, there were 35 around the world. Uh, there are now 500, all working together in open source uh, collaborative model. Uh, we link from Africa and Ghana and Afghanistan through to MIT. They all work together on education. And we have helped set up a further 17 labs in the UK. Uh, there'll be another six coming on stream in the next six months. Uh, we now form them into the Fab Lab Association. So why are we doing this uh, or involved in this? Well, we know we can't take the glory for it because you can't take credit for, for all of this. It's not a control agenda. However, one of the problems we have with manufacturing, and you'll see it in all of the policy data, is that there aren't enough people coming into it. It's got a huge legacy issue, an image problem uh, with younger people. And we thought, hang on, we had 6,000 people wander into the Fab Lab in Manchester last year. If you have 20 or 30 of these labs across the UK, open access, people of all walks of life coming into them, it doesn't take an awful lot of imagination to see 250,000 to 500,000 people walking in off the street engaging with manufacturing in its future-oriented sense. 
That's the agenda for us as the Manufacturing Institute, as we seek to inspire, educate and improve, and we'd like to see a quarter of a million people engaging with advanced manufacturing through Fab Labs. That's, uh, that's my okay. piece. Thanks, because well, there'll be time to return to all these issues uh, later on, of course. So uh, now, um, Liz Corbyn. So I am based at a space called the Institute of Making. It's a really lovely title, and indeed we do make quite a lot of things. Um, but we're a research hub at UCL. We have a make space and a materials library, and we research different types of material development and different types of techniques and processes. And it's a bit of an experiment thinking about what does a make space, an open access facility of materials and tools, look like in an academic setting. And we've been developing that for over about 10 years now. We've been at UCL for two. Um, part of my job there is that of a PhD student. Um, so, and my PhD very much is looking at the micro level of what the emerging maker community here in London looks like how it's evolving in response to the wider context of London, and how it's co-evolving in response to shared facilities, tools, and knowledge. So whilst we're talking about looking at the whole scale, I'm very much down on the ground in the nitty-gritty looking at the details of what people are making, how they're relating to one another, and how they're sharing resources. And... What I'm most interested in is trying to decipher what it means for make spaces to be within local communities, what it means to the practitioners that use those spaces, the individuals that are within those spaces, as well as the wider residing community around those spaces. And I think the most important thing that I've found thus far is just the incredible sense of social empowerment, both for the individual and the community around that space, and the sharing of knowledge and skills and resources, the type of agency and ownership that individuals be, a, are able to regain in placemaking, and as well as reconstituting the way in which they want to work and live and socialize with one another, has been incredibly profound, I think, in terms of this movement. And we'll discuss if it's a movement or not <laughs> later on, I think. Okay. Thank you. And um, lastly, Indy. Hi. Uh, so, um, Zero Zero uh, is something that started about 10 years ago, and we've been behind uh, open source furniture like OpenDesk and WikiHouse, open source housing, looking at this kind of distributed manufacturing economy. Um, and I would, I'm going to raise what I think are five key issues that we're, f we're starting to come across, uh, which aren't on the material and beautiful side. Actually, I, I think we're over-obsessed by the kind of product nature of this economy. Uh, I think there's something fundamentally more interesting going on, which is about how we organize. And I think at the center of this is actually a reinterpretation of bureaucracy, which has been the means of organizing our industrial economy for many, many years. And I think we're unlocking a new type of craft economy. And in that story, I think when we look at it, what we're starting to see is a different ideology of, of uh, innovation. Innovation is no longer about waterfalls and planned innovation, centralized innovation. It's about decentralized collective innovation across supply chains and actors in a totally different way. I think we need to understand, and when you start to look at this model of innovation, how do you put that together? How do you put, uh, put these products together and actors together, which are distributed and working together in a mesh economy? It's a completely different modality. And I don't think we're looking enough into the behaviors of this stuff. Secondly, I think when you look at actually what warranty and insurance structures look like for this distributed economy, 
I think that's where we're going to see some remarkable things start to emerge with kind of interrelationships with blockchain and how what that will do to distributed warranty manufacturing, uh, which is going to be fundamental to unlocking this economy. Thirdly, hosting communities. This, is, this sort of economy is not a corporate economy in a pure sense. It's a systems economy which means that you have to have a kind of a corporate model but also a wider public good uh, model. It fuses open innovation into its economy. You have to host, host actors which are not directly economically part of your chain but are part of the value proposition that you're building. And your abilities to do that and your organizing power and the typology of leadership and the typology of organization that you build is fundamentally different. Policy. I think our policy is still very outdated. So what is cus- customer rights look like in this economy. I don't think we've even started to look at what these sort of new pro-maker, sort of pro-consumer relationships look like, and we're not really redefining it. I think these are really challenging and important questions. And all these things I'm trying to say are are things we're now starting to face. Most people are still faking it in the consumer market. So we, we offload all our risk to consumers. Or we try to buy some risk, but it's still unquantified, and it's not actively managed. Finally, in terms of contracting, I think this sort of economy can allow us to talk about distributed smart contracting. Now, what I suppose I'm provoking is that I think the real innovation now is going to be all around our institutional logics. The institutional logics of this new maker economy are going to be fundamental to unlocking it and turning it into being what it can be. So we mustn't get over-fetished by actually the nature of the products. Actually, what we now need to do is build the institutional logics of this consumer economy, which is exactly what we did at the last Industrial Revolution. That, I think, comes together, I think, and build a new type of craft economy. By craft, I mean batch one and highly iterative. And in a way, that's the real value proposition at the centre of what's possible, but it requires us to really think about the institutional logics at the centre of it, which I think is fundamental. Well, th- thank you. Well, we've ranged across a huge number of things there. And um, I, I do like this idea of this sort of return to the artisan age. Of, you know, it's the coming back of artisans. And back, back to the Future is, of course, with us now. And October the 21st, 2015, as I'm sure you all know, was the time when, in that film, they, that was the time they went into and, and then they went <coughs> back again. And, of course, in a, in a way, we are seeing some of this idea now that we're returning to some of the ideas, um, but in, in, in an industrial age of, the, of, of the, say, the 14th century. Um, w- w- one very important thing, which I'd really love to get into, is, this, is what, it, what's the, what is the economic impact of all this? Because you can certainly see in the RSA report, which I urge you to read, um, you do see quite a lot about how many of these people there are um, doing these things. Um, we, 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 we do live in a, in a, in a, in a time when the, the UK economy is in a perilous state. Anything that can boost it in, 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 in a way, in a, in a good way, um, is, is to be applauded. And if this sort of thing can create jobs, create wealth, often at a small-scale level in places in the country which aren't doing terribly well, it would be a, a fantastic step forward. I'd like to see some sort of effort to monitor that and to chart it, and maybe this is the RSA's next next job. So having said that, I'm I, I can, look, looking at you, you look as though you're sort of eager for, for, to ask a question and I think it could be, will be difficult to stop the flood of questions. Yeah, hi, my name is Joe Hebe, uh, of I'm a fellow obviously. Um, the last speaker, Indy, I, I must confess I, I didn't understand 
what you were talking about. Uh, it was a fairly intricate language, which I'm not familiar with. So there's five points. I, I'd love you to go repeat those in a kind of layman's language for simple people like myself. I'm, I'm really sorry. I had two minutes, and I wanted to make five points, which I thought were fundamental. Basically, what I'm saying is that if you look at how corporates are designed, how contracts have been designed, all these things that were built in the 19th century and previously, they have largely structured the nature of how we've made. A combination of new technologies like blockchain and the distribution and the distribution infrastructure that we're building, like Fab Lab and other infrastructures that are being built, are going to make a new type of institutional logic to making. And the smart contracts and all these things are coming together to make a different economic model. And my worry is we're focusing a lot on the maker side, but not on the institutional logic side. And the institutional logics are going to be super important to actually creating the viability in the system. So that's, I mean, I can go through the points again, but it also some things about rights, all the c- c- customer rights, they're always based on a transactory relationship rather than a participatory relationship. So all these things, I think, need to be tweaked up. Hi there. Uh, Rowan Dodds, uh, Small is Beautiful. Indy, I really appreciated what you said there. I think it's really important to um, understand our different types of organizations. Completely love the idea of smart contracting as a former lawyer and now working in the arts. I think it's really important that we change the language in institutions and organizations. But I suppose there's two things that I would like to ask the panel. One is, is it only institutions? Because I firmly believe that the micro side of the world is one way of changing the way that we organize and changing the way that we structure our organizational and business life. And secondly, taking on from uh, what Indy said about this being a systemic economy, um, I'm curious Rather than just the economic impact, I think a lot of panellists talked about other than economic impact of the maker movement, which I think is really as valuable as the economic in, as we move forward. Thank you. Okay. Um, Rosie, yes? Um, well, oh, either of those two questions. Okay, well, I was just going to bring out my little prop, because I just oh. as I got it, I thought I should bring it out. Um, because I think this is a really good example of, 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 of where... Um, um, making an innovation can come through maker labs in, um, in a way which is totally separate to our formal structures. This is a prosthetic hand that was made um, as part of, well, it was um, shown as part of a project we did in Liverpool with FACT um, called Build Your Own, and it was exploring the idea of, of um, pe- people coming together to make. And this was a prosthetic hand that was made for a girl who didn't have a hand and it was made um, through a workshop called DOES in Liverpool. And they worked through Enable, which is a global network of volunteers who all put together ideas about how this, make, this hand could be made. The little girl came and helped make it, and she now uses it. And I think this is a great example of the really positive aspects that are coming out of the maker movement, which is it's not coming through a capitalist system. It's actually coming through a group of people coming together and sharing knowledge and expertise, and, but also the empowering nature of that for that young girl who was part of that process. It wasn't done to her. It was done with her. And I think that's a really positive aspect of this. Okay. Um, I, I think in terms of thinking about the economy and the economic impact, I think um, it's important to realise that the UK economy never exists in isolation from the rest of society. So certainly the type of educational impact and social impact and individual impact that the maker movement is having, then I believe that it will sort of seep in and benefit the wider economy as a whole as well. 
to, to echo that, I think that one of the, um, one of the sort of centres of gravity of this movement is about, um, people call it access here, but practically that's about enabling people to make things for themselves that in turn might make things. So lowering the barrier to accessing capital equipment, so the means of production, that is one of the key sort of cornerstones of this movement. So the logic has to be that if you lower the barriers to the means of production, that you can enable some economic impact to happen. And that is one, again, when we say next industrial revolution, that's one of the aspects that greatly appeal to us. There are huge dissonances and conflicts in this all the way through, and it's, a, it's an intellectual's paradise. Um, but I think the most interesting aspect is to see what bureaucracies, if you like, and what organisations and what legal structures emerge from this, and I say the word emerge, one could spend one's life analysing it and trying to anticipate it, but it will emerge. And we hear again that dissonance of we can't organise innovation, but we need to look at this and organise it. And that's a fundamental conflict that runs all the way through anyone involved in this movement. It's, it's open access, it's open source. Who protects the IP? How can I make my money out of it? So when you're involved in it, doing it, you're constantly having to balance um, that. You're constantly having to balance, can we create the next millionaire? And we have it inadvertently without setting out to do it, created millionaires out of the Manchester lab, and some very interesting business models come out of that. But at the same time, how do we engage with the, the over 55 guys with Age UK, men in sheds, the social impact on Whitby Road in Ellesmere Port, which is a very deprived area where families need to use the lab? How do you balance all of that? So, yeah, is the answer. Those things are all in it, and that's the most interesting part of it, which is how to figure it all out. OK. Um, all right, we've got lots of people now. The, the, the man there... Um... Uh, hi, Carl Allen. In 1970, we, we did a similar project. I'm sort of old. <laughs> it took us about between four to six years to give the users, the craft makers then, a sufficient range of skills to use the sort of workshops that we set up where they could simply walk in and do whatever they wanted to do. What we called it was, coincidentally at that point in time, GPS goods, goods as a personal service, whether it was from shoes to walking sticks to furniture. Uh, now that we have this range of technological tools and information-fed tools, what sort of period are we talking about in terms of training a new era of craftsmen? Yes, so you're, 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 because you're, you're, so you're essentially saying, well, this has been done before... Uh, Rosie, go on. Yeah. Um, I, I, think, I think in terms of the training and education, I think we do have a, have a big challenge on our hands because um, we have an education policy at the moment which is um, to focus on particular subjects and on what's known as the EBAC. Um, and um, any sense of sort of opportunities for young children and people to engage in, in a creative education is, is really not there in the way that it should be if we want to grow a generation of young people who understand what it's like to work with materials and explore um, through the creative process. And I think that that is a big challenge, and that's part of these contradictions that, that have already been um, mentioned, that we have 
a huge interest in the creative industries, this idea that making is really important, that this is the key to innovation. And on the other hand, we have an education system which is actually squeezing out that that um, way of thinking about the world. And I think that's a big problem uh, for the UK going forward. Um, that's a great point. I, I think one of the things, I think this is why we almost need to look back at our polytechnic structures, which are about vocational learning. And it's about vocational learning, which isn't always just about, so, oh, we just need more plumbers. Actually, high-value skills are increasingly now built real-time in real-world relationships. So how do we go from this teaching, pedag- teaching idea to a learning model? Because fundamentally, you can't teach this stuff. What you can do is create the learning capacities. So I think we have to start to look back at our polytechnics and make them high-value institutions rather than actually constantly reimagining them as filling the base of the chain of kind of institutions. And I think that's where the value chain is. And I think there's a real need to look at that. To, to sort of specifically answer that question um, with the experiment, if you like, of, of, of the Fab Labs, there's 6,000 people found their way into the Manchester Lab last year. So there's about 2,500 registered users that have all through base, been through basic training and are now moving on to, through progressive modules onto using the equipment to do more advanced projects. That moves up to this thing, which is the sort of top-level programme, which is Fab Academy, which MIT uh, teach, which is conducted by labs throughout the world. So, you, you know, each country's got a hub. Manchester's one for the UK. So you would see on a Wednesday afternoon people come in, and these are 30, 40 labs around the world from villages in Africa, Afghanistan, through to MIT, all teaching and learning um, and doing stuff and working on projects with MIT, helping and coordinating. Now, the issue for that, to, to, for me, the interesting part of this is this is well ahead of where the supply-side structures are. So coming back to your points about perhaps a specific answer to you know, the bureaucracy and the structure, the skills bureaucracy is, is miles away from this. And I can give you lots of very specific granular examples like that. If you've got the time, if you look at the apprenticeship, for example, a future-oriented uh, skill set around fab labs would not fit in any shape or form with either the protocols, the policy, the process, or the standards, and there aren't very many, that are, relate to this that are currently in the public domain. Huge issue there, and that's, that, this is sort of running ahead of things. So the big question is whether you let it run or whether you stop and try and create that bureaucracy. Personally, I've always been with letting it run. And then everyone will follow, and it'll work itself out. But we may lose economically in the meantime. We may lose out as a result, and that's the most frustrating part, whilst people catch up. Um, hello, Vali Laliotti. I'm a fellow, and I work with corporations to make them more innovative. And I absolutely understand what, where Indy is coming from, talking about the huge potential if we help corporations understand the maker world and make a huge shift between, you know, corporation economies to systems economies. And my question to the whole of the panel, both from the side of Indy but also from the maker side, if you like, how can we help corporations to make that shift? I think it's quite a big shift um, to take for quite a lot of large corporations, particularly because the type of products that are made within Makespaces are not the minimal viable product, which tends to be the thing that corporations are, that is their direction, that is their entire strategy. But I think what happens quite often in these spaces is that Makespaces are almost sites of agitation, really, um, for Large institutions across the board, so large corporations, academic institutions, policy institutions and whatnot, in terms of informing and educating the larger corporations, 
what we do quite a lot in the network in London is we bring large corporations inside to the workshops and show them firsthand what tangible examples are of small batch products that are innovative, that meet the real needs of the customers, that are appropriating, sort of reappropriating existing technologies, marrying them with new technologies, new processes, new materials. And that's become the most successful attempts that we've ever made, is actually showing them real, tangible examples of what the type of things we make in make spaces, but also, again, the larger systems that are built around these spaces that help foster enterprise and self-employment. Well, perhaps I could say that um, this is what I believe at the the beginning is true, that there is a sort of coming together of these two parts of industry. uh, It's actually a huge preoccupation with the big companies to find out how to more efficiently make things in small batches and as Liz says, they're, they're open to suggestions, but I can tell you they're doing an awful lot of it by themselves. I mean, for example, I, I know that um, you, you probably know Maersk, the, 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 the big um, firm who operates a huge number of these container ships. They're, they're investigating the idea of having on board their own ships these 3D printing um, operations, making things in batch sizes of one, just in case something goes wrong on one of those parts, on one of the... On, on the, in their engine, normally, if, if, the, if something happens to an engine and the part needs replacing, they have to get a helicopter to come in and, and, and bring it to the ship because um, it's broken down. And, and now they're starting to investigate, well, let's, let's do it ourselves on board a ship. So there's countless examples like that. I think the te- technology, the product's only one part of that, though. I think people and organisations will act out of self-interest. And one of the biggest um, aspects of this is the skills and the innovation agenda. The reason why large companies engaged originally with MIT was because of the innovation that was coming out of Media Labs. Uh, and that, I think, is, is the route map into engaging uh, organisations with these spaces as well as products. Mm. Well, in, in, in your sort of world, have, 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 are many of your uh, members sort of linking up with the larger companies or, or even growing into large companies themselves? Um, certainly there are lots of makers who are um, still working in, in fairly conventional ways, but there are also many who are now starting to engage in, in technology, science, working in, in that sort of context. We've, we've run a um, research and development project with um, medical academics at Guy's and St. Thomas's, working with makers, so an embroiderer working with robotics, um, or a ceramicist working with the um, um, a, a, a surgical department. And that's absolutely about exploring these connections between these two things. So I think it's certainly emerging as a really important um, innovation area at the moment. Hi there. Um, my name's Andrew, and uh, I'm a fellow of the RSA, but I'm also involved in a, a group called Field Ready, which is uh, deployable make, doing deployable make spaces fab labs into disaster relief zones to provide services to aid agencies. Um, I really like that the conversation's gotten into complexity theory very quickly and a lot of the, you know, talking about complex systems. One of the things that I'm curious about is what the future of the maker is in all of this because um, even just today, Fast Company have published a, a story about a car that's been designed by artificial intelligence. We are developing an app which will uh, help aid workers to automatically just, just program in what pipes they've got that they need to connect together 
and the software will automatically do the making, do the designing for them. And we're looking at the idea of Toyota Land Cruisers automatically transmitting to nearby 3D printers in South Sudan, um, deployed by us, that when they need a new brake disc to be printed. No makers involved, no logisticians involved, no supply chains involved, just things talking to things. Um, what's the future in, of, for makers in all of this? Okay, who, who, wants, who wants to answer? Do you want me to have a go at that? Oh, okay. All right, go on. You have a go. I think that's a really interesting question. And I think we're going to see new entrants into the manufacturing space from the digital and creative communities. I do think, though, uh, fundamentally, at the end of the day, somebody needs to know how to use the equipment and somebody needs to know how to make it. And I would not dumb down in any shape or form the art of manufacturing. Where we've seen even design and manufacturing separated, um, we've seen issues arise. So that combination of... Um, knowing what to do and how to actually do it is absolutely critical. The key constraint in rolling out that world that you describe is the how-to, it's the skill, whether it be in the interface between the hardware and the software, the use of materials or the actual physical manifestation, somebody's going to have to turn the machine on. That's the key constraint in this. So the skills issue, it's still there. It's maybe a different shape, but it's still at the heart of this. Um. It's a great question. Um, my way of saying, responding would be what we're seeing is that it's the iteration capacity. So it's, yeah, the linear project, so distributing the same product anywhere in the world, okay, I can fully accept that. It's going to become fully increasingly automated and machine to machine. But what we're seeing is the iterational products. So the beta versions, version 1.2, 1.3, and the contextualization of that product to that local supply chain, that's where the intelligence is. So we're going away from the standard value mechanism to the contextual value, and creating that contextual value is going to be the kind of domain of the maker more and more. That's where we're seeing the transition. That's where practically we're seeing it. I love that last question. I hope this builds on it in a roundabout way. Um, because I was really struck by the the description of, I think, that Indy indicated about a shift between an industri- a transactional relationship and a relational direct relationship. And what I'm really struck by is we're tending to talk about what I consider the process of making, but actually I don't think we can have a, an economic revolution, which is what we're really kind of talking about, without knowing who the customers are. And I think that maybe gets to some of the questions Indy was raising. Uh, And I thought there was something else really, really important in that bit that uh, I, I, too, am a fellow and was here for an event about communities and well-being earlier this week. And what we were talking about is actually research the RSA has done that is indicating how communities are, ha- are we're me- increasingly measuring the impact of bringing people together in a localized way and the benefits and cost reductions f- because of the indirect benefits. Uh, and those are tangible in health and well-being and, and particularly around mental health. So all of this has me coming back to a question of... Uh, with, what ultimately, if we're leading a kind of revolution here, or, or, or core to a revolution, is the product. But more importantly, who is the customer? Who, who do we think is buying this in what Indy rightly called a participatory way? If everyone's participating in the process, 
what is the bit that we think or each of you think will become the core product to it all mm-hmm. that I, obviously there'll be a lot of models but mm-hmm. I think that's an important piece of it oh, okay well do you, do, you, do you want to have a go at that uh, Rosie well, I suppose I've got two answers to that. I, th- I suppose one, one is that there, there are people who, who do want to engage with um, makers and they want to connect with them, and that's part of the um, exchange process of buying um, an object from a maker. Um, people want to buy into that person and the effort and the passion and the skill that they've put into, into that thing. In, in that alternative world of where um, capitalism disappears, then I suppose there is no customer. We're all, we're all sharing. We're all giving and we're all receiving. And we do that collectively. And, I mean, I think it's quite interesting. I, th- I think it's Google, is it, that um, had a huge conference in, in Greece um, and the reason they did that was because that's where they know that really interesting things are happening because people are having to come together and find new ways of working. And so they're looking in places like that for the interesting new ways of working. I think what we often see in the different workshops that I tend to reside within is that it's participatory making, but it's also participatory consumption as well. So the individuals that come to buy either one or a small multiple of something are those which want to have a relationship with whom has made their product because they effectively not only want to meet the maker, but they want to have a relationship with the made product before the transactional exchange as well. And what we're at least hopeful for is that if consumers have stronger relationships with the products that they have, then they will hold on to them far longer. And maybe we'll have a much more aware and slightly more even sustainable or ethical consumer. Okay. Um, in, in t- last, last point, just to complement what uh, the other speakers have said. I, I think what we... And, you know, there's a longer conversation around this. I think warranties and insurance will be the weirdest, best, but actually the end product at this, at this story. And I think the power of underwriters and distributed underwriters will become really interesting. So I'm going to give, throw that as a slightly oblique answer, but it's really important. And provenance, which goes with that. And those two things are increasingly, when we've looked at this stuff, becoming the key underwriters. Under, um, the logic's at the centre of it. Everything else we can distribute, but somehow there's something happening there which I think is going to be really interesting. So complementing everything else, everyone, so just that we think that's also okay, interesting. Well, there's a person who's dying to ask a question here. Go on. <laughs> Hi, my name's Gainro Finn. I'm an artist. I work in music technology and was pretty early on. Um, I guess what I'm going to be the doomsayer here... There seems to be, obviously, a great awareness that all the positivity of the maker community, the small is beautiful principle. But what we saw in music, as Tom York said this week, that Google had become the the thieves of art, the thieves of content, the thieves of IP. Vinay is going to discuss later um, what Imogen's now doing with blockchain in order to protect our rights. You know, the the cultural industry sector, 12% of the UK economy, artists and creators across the board, on less than the living London weight, less than £10,000 in London. So I guess what my question is, is without wanting to negate the positivity of the movement, how do you look to protect your rights so the big, particularly tech players, don't just come in so we don't have globalisation of hipster culture where craft beers are remarketed? Because actually, 
with respect, you know, we're sitting in a very beautiful middle-class bubble here thinking that we're all just going to go home and make craft. You know, big business, Google are in Greece for many reasons that are positive, but also many reasons that are intensely negative, looking yeah. to maximise content, ideas, and deliver that on a mass scale to create oh. money. OK, thank you. Well, Indy's got the answer to this. I'm not sure I've got the answer, but... Um, <laughs> I'll go, for, go with the answer. No, I, I think you're absolutely hitting the nail on the head. In a way, I want to return back to exactly why I said, you know, in the, in the 19th century, we created in, international standards institutes. We talked about interoperability of, rep- you know, we, we, we can get references from employers we work with. We created a set of institutional logics, and by institutions I mean the behaviors of allocation of common goods rather than actually institutions per se. So I think that's what, why I was trying to say that we need to invest in that institutional logics because without that, they'll get usurped by large single corporate actors, which will, insurance, which will actually centralize the economy using deep infrastructure. So this is why the institutional investment is super important right now in order to allow this economy to play out fairly in a civic sense over the long term. And what I want to do is get more of the debate going on that side. Well, well, I mean, perhaps I could say something, because uh, after all, I've worked for many years for the Financial Times, which is the organ of capitalism, after all. And and I don't believe capitalism is going to go away. I I think it can be um, sort of bent a bit, and, and, and some of the good things can be encouraged. But you're absolutely right to home in on that point because people like Apple and General Electric are rapacious. They, they want to control things. Um, they're not going to uh, have open source parts manufacturing allowed for their jet engines or their, their computers. I, th- I think the, the, the real answer is to set up um, good, um, well-financed uh, smaller companies who have got plenty of intellectual property protection um, to, if you like, sort of fight back, um, and, that, and people are doing that. You, you mentioned the, um, the the small the the, the 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 artificial hand. Well, there's a company in Scotland called Touch Bionics, who's backed by some institutional investors and some um, some angel investors, d- making those things I- in an incredible way. Uh, you inter- interacting with the users, um, but doing it with all their pet patent protection in, in, that they, they can muster. And so that the General Electric and Co, and co um, can't get in on it. Probably time for one very last question. Man, uh, if you can be incredibly quick. News item the other day, Dan Hayton, fellow. Um, actually, Korean Air Force is manufacturing individual 3D printed parts for their General Electric jets um, because they would cost hundreds of thousands and they can get mm. it down to tens of thousands. By doing it with G's blessing, by the way. Yeah, well, GE will want to control the intellectual yes, property. Yes, obviously. I can, I can tell you, um, for all the warranty reasons that you're, you're, you're talking about. Could I, could um, I just make another point about skill sets? Uh, one of my other interests is the history of engineering and technology. And we've gone through a phase in the 20th century, I would suggest, starting in the 19th, where people were hobbyist technologists. You had dare one say it, motorcycle mechanics, um, mm. practical electronics, well, is this a question? and so on. Is this a question? Should we encourage the hobby technologist mm. now rather than necessarily relying on setting up uh, a formal polytechnic structure? My Go recollection on. from a piece of work that was done, again, MIT on in- innovation, was that the UK's actually got one of the highest incidences of tinkerers 
Yeah, people who spontaneously um, kind of go into the garden shed to do things at 6.1%. You know, so, I mean, OK, we're not as big as America, but, you know, we've got a higher proportion of tinkerers. And, and I think there's something fundamentally kind of right culturally about the idea that, the, you know, the British are very good at innovation. And this granular kind of innovation structure, I think, plays into our hands. Mm-hmm. The question is whether that's enough to address this massive opportunity that is there, both to take some of this technology into larger scale and mid and small companies, but also to feed this consumer maker revolution. I think the numbers don't quite add up. But I'm all for putting the doing and the thinking back together again, and that's precisely what industry wants. Okay, and, and you represent lots of tinkerers, don't you, really? <laughs> yes. so, um... Lots of tinkerers, but also lots of practitioners. And the spaces that I've found that are the most rich for their community, that the individuals occupying that space are the most satisfied, are the ones that are of mixed use. So those that hobbyists are in there, maybe in the evening and on the weekends, but then you have practitioners there throughout the days, and they overlap and mingle. And what you realize is that actually hobbyism, work and play is a spectrum. You know, even if you have a day job, nine to five, but actually your real love is you want to be a painter. So you come in in the afternoon and you paint and you can sell those paintings in a gallery. What does that classify you as, a hobbyist in there or a practitioner? And what you realize more is that it's mutually beneficial. Those that are in there every day sort of really churning, working hard, developing their prototype, they truly benefit from the more social nature of those spaces when more hobbyists come in. Mm. And the social nature of the hobbyists truly benefit from the advanced skills and knowledge of the practitioners that are within that space, and they vibe off one another. So I think those spaces are incredibly Mm. rich because there's a mix. Okay. Okay, well, look, uh, thank you very much. We've we've reached the end of the time. Um, I'm just going to say one thing. Uh, Skills was brought up. I've actually set up a a website called madeherenow.com, uh, which is backed by some quite powerful names. It's in the prototype stage now, but you can look at it. And the whole point of this is to encourage more, particularly young people, to be interested in this world of manufacturing. And there will be a bit in this about the maker movement. Uh, Vince Cable is going to be on the advisory board. He's one of the few respectable politicians I can, I can think of. I, th- I want to say thank you very much to all the panel members and, and for, for, for starting what I think should be Um, a a resounding debate during the rest of the day and I hope as many of you as possible can sort of get your way into the other sessions if there are places left but thank you again for, for, for providing the wonderful questions as well Thank you for listening If you enjoyed this podcast why not download our free app to access video and audio files on the go Just visit our website, thersa.org, and follow the links to the RSA Vision mobile app.